Good day and welcome to episode 3 of the Bandit Fiction Podcast. Here at Bandit, we are a not-for-profit digital publisher run entirely by volunteers. We aim to offer additional opportunities to new and emerging writers and are always open to submissions, publishing stories direct to our website multiple times a week. Should we choose not to accept a story, however, we also provide free feedback on request. If you're interested in reading the stories we publish, or perhaps submitting one of your own, check out our website at www.banditfiction.com. The three stories we'll be bringing to you today are Mark's Journey by Michael Bird, The Infinite Woes of Being a Hero by David Christopher Johnston, and Where the Water Runs Clear by Stefan Brophy. We also have an interview with David Johnston, author of The Infinite Woes of Being a Hero, which we will get into a bit later on. Our sponsor for this episode is the We Love in Small Moments collection by Melissa Bowles. Coming May the 3rd, 2021, but available for pre-order from April the 16th, 2021, We Love in Small Moments is a collection of flash fiction on the moments people don't always see, that often are where and how we love the most deeply. David A. Romero, author of My Name is Romero, said Melissa Bowles' We Love in Small Moments crackles with excitement, gasps for air, takes thrilling first steps, and hesitantly says goodbye. An artist Bradley Gallimore referred to Bowles' writing as endearing, and easily bordering the consideration of being prosaic poetry. You can pre-order We Love in Small Moments through EIJ Editions or via melissabowles.com. Melissa Bowles, pronouns she, her, is a writer and impatient optimist out of East Tennessee who believes that storytelling is humanity's most incredible miracle. You can find her on Twitter at Mel of the Ball. As well as our sponsor, we're only able to do what we do because of the support of you, our readers and listeners. Every story review and podcast like or share we receive are much appreciated. And we have to say a special thank you to our patrons. David Brown, Stephen Thompson, Jake McAuliffe, Ola Ismail, Ryan Raven, Joe Butler, Zach Copeland-Green, Kevin Bonfield, and Randy Workman. If you'd like to find out how to become a patron, with special perks including exclusive discounts and being able to nominate stories for this very podcast, just head over to www.banditfiction.com forward slash support. Our first reading for this episode is Mark's Journey by Michael Bird. Read by Michael Bird. Whenever my cousin Mark was standing next to someone in public, at the bus stop, in a queue at the post office or supermarket, or in the pub, he would turn to them and start talking, as if they were old friends. Mark's choice of subjects were narrow, his own lack of a job, his mysterious health problems that no doctor could diagnose, his theories on why people were bad and could not be trusted, or what his mother used to say when she was alive which explained why he could not get a job, why all doctors were quacks, and why people were bad and could not be trusted. Many of those who he approached were a little surprised, and others wondered if they knew him but had forgotten. But as his dry, slow monotone detailed no more than his personal misfortunes, some humoured him for a short period, and they made an exit at the first opportunity, while others ignored him or told him to shut up, when he started talking about himself to random customers in a pub, it wasn't rare that this would really piss them off and someone would punch him in the face. This happened so often when he was out drinking that his nose was broken in three places and he was barred from half the pubs in town. 
These situations made Mark believe the whole world was against him. Some would call this paranoia. But the problem was, everyone was against him. This was not his delusion. He could not change, and so people would not change their reaction to him. This was unfair. He had issues. We had issues. But it was what it was. The last time I saw Mark was when he asked me to come round his flat and unblock a drain. He hated plumbers, as he believed they were too expensive and never solved problems, only created more so they could be hired again at a further cost. But this meant that whenever his drain was clogged up, he needed someone to fix it, so he called around his relatives until one of us said yes. As I unscrewed a pipe from below the sink and pulled out a knot of hair, ground coffee and potato peel, he told me of his latest plan. He was going on a trip to a small Caucasian republic called Kyrgyzstan. I thought he was joking. Whenever he was angry or frustrated with life, he announced that he was about to fly to Japan, Barcelona or Rio, that he had bought the ticket and he was not coming back. I believed he was just making these threats to see my response and was expecting me to tell him how his friends and family needed him here, so he must stay. But I said nothing. I was glad I said nothing. If I had said anything, he would have known I was insincere, which would have made him even more paranoid. I thought nothing of Mark's plan until months went by, during which time he did not contact me. Surprised at his silence, I asked our mutual acquaintances, his sister and our other cousins, but no one had heard anything from him. Trying to remember the country he spoke about, I googled my understanding of its name a few times in the search engine suggested different Central Asian republics, but none were exactly right. Eventually, I found a site about Kyrgyzstan, and his spelling seemed to fit. Other pages about this so-called country contained closely dated writing and poor-quality scans from library books. On message boards, there was disagreement over whether its precise location was the border between Iran and Azerbaijan, the north side of the Caucasus Mountains, or closer to Crimea or the Black Sea coast. Here I could find no accounts of its people or its customs, pictures of its architectural landscape. No experts had any idea about the name of its capital, knew of the origin of its people, or could clarify if it was ever part of the USSR. Most of the references came from over 150 years ago. In the 19th century, wealthy explorers from Imperial Russia, France and Great Britain declared they were travelling to Kyrgyzstan. A minor Muscovite writer detailed a rumour that this was the place where people went to kill themselves. It was better for victims to do this far from home, as it would cause less distress to their relatives. Suicide itself was so shameful that if a nobleman stated he was embarking on an exploration of Kyrgyzstan, it was a dignified euphemism for the act. Debunking this myth was a narrative by a French explorer, Pierre-Louis Toulouse, who was pondering on what he expected to encounter in the country. Toulouse surmised that if ten people contemplating suicide were to gather in a tavern in Kyrgyzstan, they would discover not only much in common, but also many reasons not to cut short their lives. However, Toulouse himself vanished a few months after writing this, and the route before his disappearance is unknown. None of this made it clear to me how someone as unhinged as Mark would be able to find out where the damn place was. After six months without anyone I knew hearing from him, 
and received a judge's approval to enter his flat. This was a small one-bedroom apartment in a 10-storey block in the 1970s with a tiny kitchenette. The plates and cutlery were put away in the drawers. It was clean and there was no smell, but it had changed since I came here last to fix the sink. On the wall was a giant map, Black Sea and Caspian Sea regions, and a stretch of land between the two was riddled with drawing pins, each one leading to pictures of churches, apartment blocks, cemeteries, cottages, and mausoleums. Scattered on the floor were vintage books on esoterica, some borrowed from university libraries. Printouts of obscure web pages were piled up, many Google translated from Russian, Farsi, Georgian, Turkish, and Arabic, alongside naive drawings of peasants dancing in folk costumes. A leather-bound book with a broken spine, its edges frayed, was open on his desk, where a sentence was underlined in red. Only when you accept there will be no back for you from Kyrgyzstan will the path, country, be open to you. I felt pride in my cousin. It appeared he had set himself a target and had seen it through to the end. There was something none of our family had ever helped him with, and he had achieved this all on his own. But if I ever saw him again, I would take back his praise. That was Mark's Journey by Michael Bird. Read by Michael Bird. Our second story is The Infinite Woes of Being a Hero by David Christopher Johnston. Read by me. I fantasise about quitting all the time. I storm into human resources, slam my notice down on Adam's desk, say something witty and cutting, then spin on my heels and strut out of there like I'm King Arthur. On my way out of the office, I sweep my colleague Megan off her feet and into my arms before heading to the stables, where I steal one of the company horses and ride off with my love into the sunset. I hear the staff applauding and cheering from the windows as we disappear over the horizon. Woohoo! You show em, Barry! You the man! Barry! 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 That's the dream. But therein lies the problem. It's just a dream. I won't quit, no matter how much I hate it, because I have bills to pay. And, if I'm being completely honest, I'm rather accustomed now to designer clothes, expensive holidays, and meals at fancy restaurants. The factor of the matter is that it pays exceptionally well to be a knight in shining armour. So I guess I'm stuck here. It wasn't always this way. I remember my first day on the job. I'd only just qualified and I felt like I was on top of the world. They presented me with my armour and my very own squire, named Percy. He was a great little kiddo, always eager and full of smiles. Bit too panicky, to be honest. The daft sod feared his own shadow, and his face looked like an army of acne had set up camp for a prolonged siege. But his heart was in the right place. And my horse, what a beauty she was, a destrier. I can remember thinking at the time that she was the finest of breeds, and that I was the finest of men. How arrogant I was in my younger days. I named her Cheval, which is the French word for horse. Bloody ridiculous name. But at the time I didn't care because it sounded noble and exotic, and the ladies loved it. She died three years ago this June, did Cheval. I miss her every day. Felt like all my dreams had come true that day. Sir Godfrey of Bandarian, who was knight commander at the time, dubbed my shoulders and told me to arise, Sir Barry of Bognor. Not the sexiest name for a knight, granted, but I didn't care. 
The crowd cheered and clapped, and I felt like a rock star. I was a knight. I'd made it, and I wanted the world to know it. The first thing I did when I got home was post a picture of me astride Cheval with a smug grin on my face. That will show all those bastards who didn't like me in school, my angry twenty-something brain screamed in triumph. The first few years on the job I was riding high. Princesses loved me, my flowing golden locks, athletic physique and shining armour. I'd break down the locked door to their dungeon or tower. Kidnappers in this sector are rather short on imagination. Sweep them off their feet and over my shoulder, then kill the guards and slay the dragon one-handed. I'd whistle for Cheval and she'd come striding over the castle wreckage and bear us away over the fields. We'd usually stop for a quickie in the woods on the way back to whatever fiefdom they came from, and then I'd ride up to the city gates victorious and hand them over to king and queen. In that moment, I was the hero. The valiant Savari who had saved Princess, insert name here, heir to the kingdom of Dibble Dabble or some similarly far-fetched stupid name. I dated a few of the princesses, and it was fun for a while, but never worked out. Once they realised I didn't rule my own kingdom or possess mountains of gold, the passion mysteriously vanished. Those were the good years. I was hitting my target so the bosses loved me, winning melee and jousting tournaments, and getting VIP treatment at all the bars and clubs. And the money just kept flowing in in a river of bonus payments. I sat atop my pedestal of ego and opulence and looked down from the clouds upon everyone else. But then the honeymoon period wore off, and things began to change. The reality that I was going to do this for the rest of my life sunk in, and I struggled to find the same joy in the day-to-day. -day. The bottle of wine or two with colleagues after work became bottles of wine at home, alone, and then the incident with Rapunzel happened. Rapunzel. What a bitch. She wasn't even a real princess. For some reason, this kid's parents agreed to give their only child to a sorcerer that lived in the woods. Lo and behold, the sorcerer turned out to be a few sandwiches short of a picnic, and locked Rapunzel in a room at the top of a tower with no doors, stairs, or any other way in or out. How she got food or water is anyone's guess. Anyway, 18 years later, Rapunzel's mother and father decided that they wanted to be parents again and hired me to rescue her. When I arrived at the tower, I went through the usual protocol. Shouted up to her and introduced myself, told her who I worked for, reeled off the standard legal disclaimer and informed her that I was here to rescue her. That's when she told me about the door situation. I stood silent for a moment and tried to think of a plan of action. Why don't you just climb up my hair? She shouted down to me. What? I shouted back, totally bewildered, but she said the same thing again. The girl was clearly not well, all that time in solitary perhaps. I pretended I hadn't heard her and offered to get a ladder or some rope, but she insisted on climbing her damn hair. I tried to talk her out of it, but she was adamant. For crying out loud, just do as I say and climb my hair, you stupid knight! She screamed down at me. And so I did. And boy did she complain about it. Screamed her lungs out as I climbed, rubbed her head and cried as we made her way back to her parents' house, complained constantly about the bald patch just behind her ear. Never said thank you for rescuing her mind, not once. Well, within a week I was called into human resources, and Adam, I hate that guy, informed me that Rapunzel's parents had made a formal complaint, and the company had been contacted by a personal injury law firm who were demanding compensation for her injuries and hurt feelings. That's outrageous, I said, 
what are we going to do about it? We aren't going to do a thing, Alan hissed back at me, spittle flying out of his mouth and landing on my gauntlet. You are going to fix this and formally apologise, and I will try to limit the reputational damage you have caused this company with your idiocy. If you are lucky, you will keep your job. My face flushed with anger. Emotion screamed at me to stick the job off Adam's rosy backside, but rationality questioned whether my bank would accept that as a valid reason for missing mortgage payments. So I gritted my teeth, wrote out the formal apology, and managed to look so pitiful that Adam agreed to settle for a written warning and a 12-month development plan. After the Rapunzel situation, the work stopped being fun. Getting out of bed in the morning became a chore. It was all targets and numbers. Work-life balance went out the window. The hours got longer and the bonuses got smaller. Expected to do the work of four nights at once, pressure began to affect my mental health. I started seeing a therapist, in secret of course, as knights in shining armour do not need therapy. And that helped me get through the days. I never wanted to be a knight, to be honest. But my parents and teachers were adamant I choose a real career. Music was my passion. I wanted to be a musician, write songs and tour the world. Dad was having none of it. No son of mine is doing music, he yelled at me. And if you think I'm paying for you to go to university to do some pretend subject like that, you've got another thing coming. This argument went on for a few months until I decided to just become a knight to avoid the grief. I put my dreams of being a rock star aside to live their dreams instead. My therapist says that's probably why I have so much repressed anger. University wasn't so bad. I went to Oxford on one of those scholarships they hand out to the working class smart kids and rocked up with my poor kids quota stamp plastered across my forehead. My family was so proud. I loved the practical training and excelled in my studies. Even so, some of the people at Oxford were intolerable, students and lecturers alike. I can remember in our first etiquette seminar when we had to introduce ourselves, where we were from, hobbies, etc. When I mentioned my comprehensive school, one of the students, Oscar, blurted out in front of the whole seminar in his pompous, breathy voice, You went to a comprehensive school? How quaint. The whole class laughed, including the lecturer. I've never wanted to hit someone so much in my life. It took all of my strength not to throw a chair across the room. Instead, I just smiled, got up and calmly left. Then I punched the shit out of the boy's toilet cubicle until my hands were bloody. It was the thought of qualifying that kept me going. I naively thought that once I had finished university, I would never have to deal with these pretentious idiots ever again. But of course, the Oscars and the Tarquins follow you into the working world. Instead of studying with them, you end up working with them, attending meetings with them, going to networking dinners with them. So all you can do is smile and pretend you don't dream about decapitating them in a jousting tournament. Networking with them is the worst. They spend their entire night in the toilet, four people to a cubicle, all with a serious case of the sniffles and coke smeared across their faces looking like they've sneezed into a sherbet dip bag. It keeps me going through the long hours, Oscar said to me with a chuckle at last year's Christmas party, when I pointed out that he had white powder all over his nose. This is a guy who is now a senior director at my company, a man who shakes, Hey, old compy, 
every time he sees me and spends his days leering over the female employees. What is the world coming to? Despite all the above, I could tolerate Oscar and the office nonsense if the clients were grateful like they used to be. But these days they are a nightmare. Spoiled brats who spend their days posting on social media about how terrible it is to be locked up in a high tower, only to complain when yours truly comes to the rescue. The stories I could tell about these millennial princesses would make a kettle boil. Snow White, for example. Her real name is Claire. She changed it because she thought it sounded more magical. Seriously. Surely, when you live with seven fellas and none of them even try to rescue you from the Wicked Queen, it should ring alarm bells about your attitude. Another princess told me to chill out when I broke down her cell door and said we had to leave immediately. There was a fucking dragon hot on my heels and she expected me to wait five minutes while she updated her apps on the castle Wi-Fi. What a psychopath. One particularly painful job last year. I had to make my way through a snowy, enchanted forest, battling wolves and vicious rose bushes, and then fight off an unexpected onslaught from magical crockery as I entered the castle. With a maniacal fork sticking out of my leg and hurling abuse at me, I finally located the princess, who chose this moment to inform me that she had fallen in love with her captor and wanted to stay. Why the hell didn't you let us know? I yelled as a bad-tempered candlestick pulled at my hair. A simple text or email? She looked at me like I'd just shaved her dog without permission, and then presented her with an invoice. I forgot, she said, and then carried on texting. And I've already told you about Rapunzel. Fuck Rapunzel. Then the epiphany hits me like a speeding train. Why on earth am I still doing this job? I hate it. It's time I got my act together and quit. I'll give them my notice first thing tomorrow. It's already typed and in an envelope on my coffee table. It's been there for months. But then I hear Dad's voice. What else are you going to do, buddy? He says. You're not trained to be anything other than a knight. Stop daydreaming and living the real world. Singing won't pay your bills, son. And we both know you're not going to quit. It's tragic. But he's right. I won't quit. I'm too old now to take the risk. Too scared of change. It's pathetic. So I'll go in tomorrow and put on my fake hero smile and my dented and dull armour. Say hello to the love of my life, Megan, who doesn't even know I exist. Suppress a psychotic episode when Oscar shouts, Hey old compy! across the office at me. Sit on top of my stupid, smelly horse that isn't Cheval and go and rescue some ungrateful princess. Then go home and down three bottles of wine and cry into a bowl of ice cream about the infinite woes of being a hero. So, that was The Infinite Woes of Being a Hero by David Christopher Johnson, and we have David here to discuss a little bit about the piece. So, David, could you introduce yourself for us, please? Yeah, sure. Hi, Dan. My name is David Johnston, and I'm a fiction author from Derbyshire in England. I write mostly satirical and humorous fiction that often has a fantasy element to it, and much of my work focuses on themes of mental health and the modern workplace. Um, and The Infinite Ways of Being a Hero is actually my first published story. Oh, it was a very good one as well. Uh, Thank you. Speaking of, could you tell us what inspired that piece? Yeah, this one was, uh, I've worked in offices my whole life and I wanted to write a piece that made fun of the practices and the behaviours um, in the modern workplace. And So initially this was a story that was going to be about a disillusioned 
employee that wanted to quit his job but didn't have the courage to do so. And the fantasy element came later. My whole life I've really enjoyed fantasy fiction, Tolkien and Terry Pratchett in particular. And I brought that in because I kind of felt that that juxtaposition made the, the story funnier and made a bigger impact. So obviously most people think of a knight in shining armor as this glamorous, heroic job. And in, in reality, it wasn't. And so I, I, I just thought it was quite funny, really, to mix the two things together, to try and make that point about what is essentially a really disillusioned and, and upset character. The parts that took the mickey out of and fairy tales, that kind of came in as I was writing, really. I didn't, I didn't anticipate that to happen initially. Mm. But it, I, I take an approach where I just kind of write and vomit it onto the page to see what happens and then hope the rewrite goes well. <laughs> yeah, that's the exact same attitude I take of just throwing things onto the page and seeing what sticks at the end of the day. But yes, the, the inclusion of the, the fantasy element does definitely add a sort of absurdist nature to it, for want of a better phrase, because it's it's that juxtaposition of fantasy within the modern setting of office work, effectively. Well, it it thankfully seemed to work. I wasn't sure if it would, but it, it thankfully seems to have been well received. So I'm quite happy. Have you continued to work on it since then? Not on the short story itself, but after after Bandit Fiction published the story and it and it did much better than I anticipated, I decided to turn it into a, a novel. So for four months last year, I wrote the first draft of that novel, which is now done, mm-hmm. um, and I'm and I'm now in the process of of going through the the editing and, and finalising it, which is probably going to take a little while longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's been really enjoyable actually because it's although it's the same character, Sir Barry of Bogner, and it it is basically about an individual who is really disillusioned by his job. It went in a direction that is very different to the store to the short story, and is not what I expected at all. So yeah, it was it was really enjoyable to write actually. The editing stage is not so enjoyable. That's tear your hair out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, um, I'm familiar you'll with know that. How one. that is. <laughs> I admire your conviction to be able to write a novel in in uh, four months. I've been writing mine for over a year and I've still not finished it. I took an approach where, because I work full time as well, so I mm. took an approach that for four months, I six days a week, I got up at six o'clock and wrote for two hours before I started work, mm-hmm. and then didn't do anything else on it mm. at any point during the day. And it, that that seemed to work. By the time I'd finished, I was quite exhausted, I think. But um, it it definitely seemed to work because I found in the past that if I if I worry too much over certain sentences, I can spend days just looking at the same sentence for the same page. And this way, I kind of just got the story out onto the paper without worrying about whether it was perfect or polished. And now I'm dealing with the aftermath of that, of having to edit <laughs> and get it in a position where someone wants to read it. <laughs> so you mentioned that you've changed the direction of it, sort of whether voluntarily or just through the process. But what is it about you? Have you changed? Are you able to reveal that without spoiling? Or failing answering that question, if you could go back and rewrite the original The Infinite Woes of Being a Hero, is there anything you would change about it? I think it's changed generally in the way that it's taken a much more direct look at the mental health implications and the reasons behind Mm -hmm. the character feels the way he feels so it kind of mingles pure fantasy comedy hopefully hilarious rescues with things that happen in everyday modern life in offices it tries to mix those both together in a way that shows the the deterioration of this individual 
on the original story, anything you would change about it if you were to go back and rewrite it? I probably would have made it slightly longer to explain, having having now written the novel version and ex- and really extended in depth some of those ideas in that in that short story. I probably would have made it slightly longer to um, explain some of the background more about the the rescues that he refers to. I, d- I did read this story the other day before we had this interview, and I'd, I've not read it in months. And I did what I imagine most writers do, where I just picked the whole thing to pieces and was kind of like, I don't like that sentence. I'd like to change this sentence. That's not very good. <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, but I, I, I forced myself to reach a point with my short stories where I've done all the checks and the edits and, and I'm done. And I commit to not changing that moving forwards. I think probably for my own sanity rather than anything. Perhaps you do the same in, in your writing. Oh, absolutely. Like, that's the point I'm at with my novel at the moment. <laughs> yes, yeah. Let's. You've got to. You've got to just keep plough ahead, haven't you? Yeah. And and yeah, and worry about it afterwards. When publishers, editors are going to look through it anyway. I think you'd probably have to reach a point where you go enough's enough. Mm. So, as a someone who's published through Bandit and who's working on their own novel at the moment, do you have any advice for other aspiring authors? I think because I've only been doing this a year, and I'm probably not the final say on this kind of thing so i wouldn't take my words as gospel but um my advice above all would be to just write for you and write what you want to write so i've only been doing this professionally for a year but for several years before that i did it as a hobby where i'd pick up ever so often throughout the year but i found myself writing stories that i believed um, publishers would want to publish rather than what i wanted to write and it was a is a friend of mine ross who encouraged me to go down the satire and the comedy route um, because I'd written a story several years ago about two individuals texting each other while bored at work and so I focused on that and I found I find a lot more joy in, in writing now than I did before I, I feel I'm able to to have fun while I'm writing and so my advice to any writers would just be to not worry about what everybody else is writing and to not worry about whether this will be received well by a, a publisher or the readers but to just write what you want to write and I, I found that that helps me produce my best work. Fair enough. I think that's good advice. By all means, you might not be the most experienced mind in the industry, but completely functional advice, and one I might be taking to my heart myself. Uh, And on a final note, we've already touched on this several times, I feel, but where else can we find your work? And Well, my second published story was released by Bandit Fiction in January, so that's available on their website. that's called Free, um, and it's about a widower who attends a speed dating event at his local village hall. But otherwise, there's my website, which is davidchristopherjohnston.com, has several free stories to read and some further information about upcoming books and short stories. Generally update what I'm doing on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at DCJ. But I'm not a prolific user of social media, so that tends to be quite sporadic. Um, but I, I do put updates on what I'm doing and when new stories come out on there. Okay, thank you very much. So if anyone else is looking out for David's excellent satirical comedy, then feel free to go to his Twitter or his website and see what you can find there. Perhaps if he gets a bit more traffic, he'll be more inclined to (laughs) keep it up to date. (laughs) Yes, perhaps, yeah. (laughs) Right, so I think we'll end the interview there. Thank you, David, for joining us. Thank you, Dan, for having me. That was David Christopher Johnson on the story The Infinite Woes of Being a Hero. That was David Christopher Johnston speaking about his story 
the infinite woes of being a hero. I'd like to take a moment away from the incredible work people have sent into Bandit to shine the spotlight on another creative venture. TLDR Press TLDR Press is a writing community and publisher focused on connecting writers with growth opportunities and creating anthologies for charity. Each TLDR Press collection supports a specific charity and is created through the hashtag TLDR Writing Community. They have released 10 collections of short stories and poems to date, with their latest release, Hope, helping to fund action against hunger. You can find out more about them at tldrpress.org or follow them on Twitter at tldrpress. Our final piece for the day is Where the Water Runs Clear by Stefan Brophy. Read by Stefan Brophy. I was in no condition to be driving an 18-wheeler. The medication kept me tethered to the world around me, but rendered heavy machinery out of the question. So when the dispatcher called me for an international run, I flushed the pills. I didn't want Sarah to be worrying about the turns my mind might take without them, so I said nothing. Just kissed herself and her son on the forehead and told her I'd be a couple of days. I felt fine at the depot, where I loaded computer processors into the lorry. During the drive to the port, I nearly had myself convinced that I didn't need the meds anymore. It wasn't until I stood on the stern of the ferry with the salt water spray on my lips, watching the motor's churning white wake drift back towards the Irish coast, that I could feel myself coming apart. When things got away from me like this, I had the feeling of detachment from the world and everyone in it. At times, I struggled to recognise even the people closest to me. The ferry crossing played out like a film seen through a fractured lens with the picture and the sound out of sync. It was a picture I had been given no part to play in. I could only observe from the outside. When the voices started up, I knew I was in real trouble. They had nothing to offer but bad ideas about the ice-cold water below. Then, somewhere along the way, I lost time. I came back into myself behind the wheel of the lorry on a motorway where the heat rose off the tar in a bleary wave, returning from the same waking dream as always. It was the image of myself as a child, huddled alone in a dark forest, terrified. I used an orientation exercise I was once prescribed to ground myself to the present in these situations. It began with naming five things I could see. An army of dead bugs peppered across the windscreen. A troll doll swinging from the rearview mirror. Bare grey mountains. On a blue road sign that squiggle above the N in La Coruña. Okay, so I was in Spain. I took out my phone and brought up the fifth thing I could see. A picture of me and Sarah smiling down at the baby who slept in my arms. My smile told the story that I was connected to the moment, to my family but the truth was that I couldn't remember when or where the picture was taken. All I wanted was to hold him then and be sure that he was real. Next, name four things I could touch. The hair on the troll doll, electric purple and bristly between my fingers, the sweaty grip of the steering wheel, the gear stick, the empty water bottles strewn across the passenger seat. Three things I could hear. 
the drone of the engine, the radio host speaking rapid-fire Spanish, the voice in my head telling me to steer into the oncoming lane and be done with it. Two things I could smell. The wild cherry air freshener, seaweed on the breeze, and finally name one good thing about myself, that I haven't yet given in to the voice's suggestion. I sat once, staring blankly at a wall of diplomas, in a beige room before a beige man with pale, searching eyes. Childhood drama, he told me, would be the driving factor behind all of this. If you think about that for a minute, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I opened and closed the clasp of my watch. Nothing, he said. No drama. I turned my attention to the face of my watch then to a lone dog wrestling a scrap of newspaper out in the car park. Anywhere but his face. But that would make you the first then. Could you tell me a little bit about your relationship with your mother, maybe? The brittle voice of a younger me spoke so timidly I had to strain to hear it. You can't, it said. It was a secret, remember? I turned to shush a child that didn't exist. The beige man saw and scribbled something in his notepad. He chanced some analogy about the mind being the most complex safe in the world and how a deft approach was required to unlock its mysteries. Still, I gave him nothing. Okay. Well, from the referral letter I received, he said, all the signs point to... I stopped him there. The last thing I wanted was a label on what was broken. You can't hide from a diagnosis. It leaves no wiggle room for what you can tell yourself. This is reversible, he said. Whatever he said next, he said to my back as I left the room. Sarah didn't seem too settled in her own skin when I arrived home from Spain. She was always wary of which version of me had come home to her. She asked about the trip and I lied. She fumbled with the beginning of a question about my mental state but trailed off and instead told me it was expected to be the hottest day of the year. I think she feared the truth every bit as much as I did. I nodded and we failed to meet each other's eyes. Beyond her, in a shaded nook of the living room, our son slept in his rocker. I wanted to pick up that tiny stranger from the image on my phone screen and hold his weight and his heat against me. Not wanting to wake him, I leaned in and touched his soft nose and felt the tiny current of his breath against my fingers. No stranger, I whispered. I sat myself cross-legged on the carpet and watched the rise and fall of his tiny chest. Outside the window the sun was blazing high and the kids of the estate were armed with water balloons, engaged in giddy battle. I was able to take it in as if, exactly as it was happening and the fleeting feeling of lucidity was so beautiful that I could hardly stand it. It only served to remind me of what I was missing. When I looked back, Sarah had stripped down to a pair of denim cut-off shorts and a bikini top and she was stooped low, rubbing sunscreen into her calf. I've been looking out at that sun for the last two days, she said. Will you two be all right for an hour? Of course. She capped the bottle of lotion and hovered in the doorway. Okay, she eventually said, and disappeared towards the back garden. Time got away from me, and the next thing I knew, Sarah was screaming. 
Jesus, Owen, what were you thinking? What are you ever thinking anymore? The small fellow was up on his feet, holding on to the fire guard and reaching for the bright flames. His standing was a new trick I'd missed on the road, or maybe it had happened on some earlier day before my glazed eyes. She scooped him up and held him tight to her chest. Tears brightened her face. In my haze, I watched the pair of them with the indifference of a show I had a passing interest in. Her features didn't raise any warmth in me. I couldn't grasp a single one of the many threads that bound our histories together. She was being drawn slowly away from me like a memory fading in real time. Then they were gone from the room and I looked down and noticed the cold dust smudged into my hands. I had no memory of lighting a fire. I was still between worlds when she came back in, stumbling in my mind through a sea of pines, my shadow fading into the dusk, drawn by the whisper of running water. Sarah's words snapped me back to real time. She sat on the couch with her arm around my shoulder and the small fellow wriggling in her lap, so close to the image on my phone, but worlds away in truth. She'd, she had arranged my admission to St. Edna's psychiatric ward the following morning. I couldn't handle the thought of my son losing his father before he got the chance to know me, or worse, that he would grow into me, into a man untethered from the world around him, existing in his own lonesome abyss. We ate pasta in the living room. Sarah's encouraging words sounded as if read from a script from the beige doctor. Forks scraped against plates. The small fella hand-fed himself soft slivers of vegetables in his high chair and my mind churned and darkened. I waited until she took the last of the dishes to the kitchen. The front door would be too loud, so I carried him out the bay window and into the car. I buckled us both in and rolled down the cooling tar slope before starting the engine. He was soon asleep again, swaddled in his favourite blanket. Wouldn't it be grand to feel so secure in yourself, I thought, to feel that the world is a safe and reasonable place. I wanted more than anything for him to never lose that feeling. The drive took us up through the Sheehy Mountains. The road was a narrow rut twisting between jagged rock faces. Nimble goats clung to jutting limestone shelves. Boulders pocked the fields as if fallen from the sky in some storm in a time before our history. I'd told him on the maternity ward while his mother slept that we'd work it out, that we'd always be there for him, together. But I was already coming apart by then. It's amazing what you can suppress when it suits you. There are parts of everyone, I've no doubt, that are blind to reason, especially when the truth is at stake. It all began to slip away from me then up in the mountains, Time fractured and warped as we climbed together into the bright, hysterical sky. Sometime later, I sat in a wooded area. I came back into myself with a shrieking headache, like a bright storm behind my eyes. In the balmy heat, I couldn't be sure which side of the sea I was on. Name five things you can see. The dashboard display lit up like a constellation. A rank of brittle pines stretching skyward. The moon, pale behind thin scraps of cloud. Coiled in my lap, a length of hose running out through a thin crack 
at the top of the driver's side window and drooping out of sight. Jesus Christ. He was in the back, his little face livid red, crying end of the world tears. The key was in the ignition, but the car wasn't running. I had 14 missed calls on my phone. I got out and unbuckled him and cradled him to my chest. I paced in the pine needles under that navy sky, gently swaying him, whispering apologies until his tiny body softened and settled into mine. Then I called Sarah. The memories were slow to come. For years I had tamped them down out of my own reach. Drawing blood from a stone, the doctor in St. Edna's said, but he teased out a couple of drops. Fleeting snatches of memory, like the months after my father left and the world got too heavy for my mother and she locked herself in the bedroom for days at a time, leaving me to eat crackers at the kitchen counter, watching my Scooby-Doo tape on repeat. Whenever she did leave the bedroom, I followed her from room to room, begging to know when my father was coming home until the sound of my voice broke something in her and she left for the night, locking me in the apartment. The memories began to pour out and soon I was hemorrhaging through. I couldn't stop myself if I wanted to. Then we came to my sixth birthday. I stood with my mother in nature reserve, flinging stones from the banks of the River Lee. If you followed this river, she told me, it would take you all the way to the city. The stones in that place were sunburnt pink, polished smooth and flat by the rushing water. I recall being amazed by how my mother glided them across the surface, skipping three, four, even five times before sinking. But no matter how much I mimicked her throwing style, my efforts arced limply into the current. She crouched down and faced me with a softness in her eyes I'm not sure I'd ever seen before, and said, You'll figure it out, Owen. Then she patted me on the head and walked to the car. I continued to sink stones until I heard the engine start. I turned to see the car climbing the hill towards civilization, a suitcase jammed against the back window. She had spent so much of my childhood avoiding me that I think I understood even then that I was watching her driving towards a new life where I wasn't necessary. I was stranded with the therapist on that riverbank for weeks. When we eventually got moving again and he asked me to visualize that day, I saw a crowd of pines towering above me. They seemed to pierce the darkening sky, hiding the starlight from me. I stumbled all that evening after the current with a tinfoil parcel of sandwiches and an apple box, my mother's parting gifts, cradled in my arm, watching out for a city that I now know was 40 miles distant. I found shelter in a crevice between two boulders. On a bed of damp moss, I sat hugging my knees shivering against the cold, hiding from the howls and rustles of night and watching clouds of my breath bloom and die in front of me. I was so terrified I couldn't keep the list of fears straight in my head. In that endless dark, anything was possible. A pair of hikers found me in the morning. They fed me protein bars and carried me in a silver blanket to their care. From there, the therapist followed my tattered thread of memories from one care home to the next and on through my history. Eventually, the world began to take shape again. My periods of lucidity began to stretch out 
until there were whole days without an episode or a blackout and weeks at a time. Sarah doesn't know about my trying to save our son from himself, from a future I didn't want for him. I told her I just wanted some time alone with him before I went in. I told her I didn't know when or if I'd ever get that again. I don't know what she believes. Since my discharge, I've been staying in a hostel in town. I get two visits to the house a week, and she says I can take him out on my own again soon. I've taken a job landscaping with my cousin. He fills the days with talk about conspiracy documentaries. We clear dead flower beds, and he tells me how Lyme disease started as a biological weapon that leaked from a government lab in Arizona, or how Paul McCartney died in 1966 and was replaced with a lookalike. His wild chatter is entertaining enough to keep my mind from straying too far. The fresh air seems to do me good and the welts on my hands let me know I've a day's work put down. All in all, it beats those lonesome hours in the cab of a truck. Only my own thoughts for company. This week we're building a deck in the garden of a house that backs onto the River Lee. At lunchtime today I sat on the shore, watching the shifting patterns of the surface glittering under sunlight. Bream flitting through the clear water. I absent-mindedly took up a flat pink stone, and as my thumb glided across its smooth surface, thinking of how the currents had shaped it, how the sluicing waters had moulded it into what I held in my hand, I felt the old darkness begin to well up in me again. I swung my arm and released it into the water. It scraped gracefully across the surface, ripples swelling out from its deft impacts. I counted six hops before I turned my back on it. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the stories we brought to you this episode. And if you have, please like, share, review, and generally help us bring these amazing works to as many people as possible. If you're interested in reading more of the stories and poems we've published, or perhaps even want to be involved yourself, head over to our website at www.banditfiction.com. Thank you once more, and we'll see you again next time.